welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so Isaiah and John uh, is where we're at this week, and uh, we're jumping back into Isaiah, and uh, there's a pretty hard thematic break uh, between chapters 39 and 40. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts on authorship as well with that break, uh, and it seems like time-wise, uh, we are shifting. If, if the first two sections that we kind of pulled out of Isaiah when we broke up the first two sections were uh, one about sort of pending uh, judgments that were going to happen, these sort of warnings that were uh, proclam- proclamations of warnings, and then we shifted to all the woes, all the judgments that were actually happening upon the nations, and in particular on the people of Israel. Uh, when we pick up this week in chapter 40, um, it, it probably felt very, very different than those because it just starts with like comfort and it's, and it's hope and it's um, kind of God returning to his promises to a people who are uh, likely at this point in time in exile uh, and, and are hearing um, that there's restoration that God hasn't forgotten them. And it's, it's good news in the midst of the sort of suffering moment, uh, which is why we kind of put it where we're at in the timeline. We haven't gotten to return to Israel yet. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. Uh, but Isaiah speaking at this moment to go, look, there's hope and the punishment, the, the sort of judgments are, are over for Israel and Israel. I'm, I'm bringing you back. I'm restoring you. Yeah, I bet this section was really a breath of fresh air to read after we went through Job and everything. And just starting here, you know, God is God is offering a promise of comfort to Israel while they are in exile, but it's also a promise of the pardon that is still coming. And so many of you probably thought of John the Baptist speaking uh, and referencing this passage in Isaiah, and he is referencing this com- complete pardon that we get through Christ. And so we get to look at the comfort that God is offering Israel in the moment and this future pardon that will come in Christ. Yeah. And there's very much a, just make way. Like this is a, as if there's a Royal visit, clear the path, get everything ready. Uh, his, his glory mm. is coming. And so yeah. uh, the same thing that ultimately happens through John the Baptist. Uh, and then we're reminded like, even though, um, everything sort of uh, has its time and will fade and and there's nothing that ultimately compares to the, the sort of timeless uh, sureness of God in his word and so um, it, it sort of feels a little bit interjected here but the sort of uh, reminder of like look like yes the king is coming and he is the timeless one even though we all fade and beauty itself doesn't last life itself doesn't last but God himself will last forever I love how this passage of, of God lasting forever and how what he says will pass comes right after he promises pardon and comfort. So the context of this is that what God says about pardoning iniquity and that all flesh shall see, shall see the glory of the Lord it's true for us now. As we read scripture, we need to believe and be confident that what we read is true and it, it's true now and it will always be true. And it is really so comforting to have an anchor that is true in a world where truth changes so much. So remember reading this idea of God's word standing forever right after he promised comfort and pardon and that stands forever through Christ. And Isaiah has to go uh, kind of declare to the people of Zion, the people of Jerusalem to, to return and that, and that Yahweh is coming back himself too and, and to... Uh, he's going to come back. He's going to take care of Israel's enemies. He's going to gather them like flocks. And then we get um, a few sections that are really descriptive of God. We hear his greatness over creation. That feels 
kind of like a, a few different things we've read recently, uh, that the nations themselves are just like a drop in the bucket. Uh, the idols, which will be the first mention of sort of the, this constant refrain throughout all this good talk of just how terrible idols are, um, and that God puts kings and princes in their place. So his reminder to the people is like, don't lose hope, people. Like God knows we, he hasn't forgotten you. He's been working. He doesn't grow weary and all this like like even the youths do in your time. So so hear this as comfort. God God's still doing his thing. He's just greater than you know. So what we read here is the difference between God creator and that his creation it's it's an immeasurable difference it's so giant and so when we are exhausted or when we feel like we're at the end of our rope we are reminded that our strength does not come from self-improvement but from waiting on or hoping in or trusting in the lord if you are weary or you are exhausted your command is to wait and to rest in the lord and in that resting in the lord and resting in the creator your strength will be renewed yeah and then we're reminded um uh, or last week uh, I said we have to be a little bit um, careful sometimes of immediately hearing certain phrases and jumping to go, oh, that's that's immediately about Jesus. And there's not a context that uh, the audience would have heard that would have actually applied still completely to their audience. And so when when Isaiah says things like Isaiah 41, 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who am in you descendants of Abraham, my friend, um, and, and, and like it is a plural y'all that becomes a singular servant and um and and for the text from 41 to uh, about um maybe 48 into the 50 early 50s there's a lot of talk about servant if anything this section that we're going to break down because we'll do a last section of isaiah a little bit later um have very much has a theme of a servant. It's going to come up a lot throughout these sections. And it's, it's a little complicated because I mean, some of the explicit language is that this is about Israel, but at the same time, we will see stuff that feels very messianic and will be picked up by the gospel writers as very messianic. And so uh, we, we got to walk both lines and that's just part of interpretation. All right. What does this mean for the people that heard it? Cause they probably didn't hear it and immediately think, Oh, one day there's going to be this individual is going to come and all this kind of stuff. They're going to hear it a little bit about, Oh, this is about us. We are the servant. And so making sure that we walk both those lines well. Um, but uh, we, we get uh, God asking questions almost like Job again, but he answers his own question. Who orchestrates all that comes to pass? He's like, it's it's me. I, I do that just so you know. And um, Israel, you're my servant. And by saying that, God is reminding them, like, you, I haven't given up on you. Like, yeah, I, I chose you out of this world and I'm not forsaking you now. You will continue to be uh, the one who who serves me. And, and, and the word serve also means worship me. You are the one who reflects uh, who I am. And I'm going to deal with your enemies until there's not even them. And, and you may feel like a worm, but but I'm going to turn you into the threshing slide. This is how you're going to serve me. And so like one of those ways is also how you're going to uh, purify uh, this world and 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 to ultimately make it holy. And so chapter 21, uh, we, we saw the threshing sledge and Israel is going to experience sort of the judgment of God. But now uh, Israel themselves is going to be in some ways a threshing sledge doing the works of God in this world. And, and part of that is also how um, the, 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 those in need, those in thirst will be provided for. Um, it's similar to Ezekiel. We see this picture of like trees popping mm-hmm. up in the midst of the desert and Eden coming into this desert place. And that's sort of the promise in Israel, through, through you, my servant, this is going to be your future. Yeah, that's definitely something we see come up a lot in Isaiah, this fertile ground appearing in wastelands and things like that. I think to me, chapter 41 kind of summarizes that God directs history for his glory and for our good. It makes you think of Romans 8, 28. But, and we need not fear, which also probably makes you think of Romans 8. When we look at the world around us, 
it causes many of us to be filled with fear and anxiety because it feels dire. It feels hopeless. But when we look to the Lord, we are reminded that He holds our right hand and He promises to help us. And I know that this feels impossible at times, but a good way to believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God over all of history is to read scripture in times of fear, to play and sing along with worship music, declare and believe what is true over you. Even if you don't necessarily feel it in the moment, it doesn't make it less true. Yeah. Uh, and then we get another section. As I said, we'll, we'll get multiples of these. Or you read multiples of these this past week, uh, that there's a futility to idols, um, which, once again, this was the one of the biggest struggles that, that God had with his people is that there was idolatry. They were bringing in all sorts of other forms of worship. And he's reminding them, look, I'm, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do these things. But you need to remember. I hate idols. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they offer nothing. People seek like future and trying to figure out the, the answers to things, but but they offer nothing. They're like an empty wind, as uh, it's phrased. And um, God wants to destroy them like clay pots. And that's what he does. He brings them the northern wind. And this is sort of the picture of Babylon and to destroy uh, Israel of its idols. Yeah. These idols are a delusion and their works amount to absolutely nothing. Yeah, and and we hear about Lord's chosen servant again, and and once again there could be a, certainly a double meeting between Israel and Jesus, but uh, that they're going to be this restored nation, showcasing God's law again to the rest of the world. They'll take care of the suffering. They'll bring justice to the world, and um, and yes, Matthew twelve will pick up on this text, especially the beginning of this text, very definitively uh, to reference Jesus as he's sort of healing others and stuff like that. That in some ways they're, he's taking care of the suffering in the world, and he's bringing about restoration. And so uh, I think there's some of the both and that's supposed to be happening here. Yeah. We see God's servant sacrificially serving others. And through this, through this service, he brings justice to the nations. Um, And we specifically see this promise of opening eyes for the blind fulfilled in what we read in John even just a few weeks ago. And then we hear uh, a metaphor of a woman giving birth uh, in this text. And uh, if, if you were reading John, it's the same thing happens uh, in there, but we'll deal with John's in a second. But uh, there's this idea of something new is coming, and this, this, this new restoration that's coming that's distinct from what has been before. And God's going to create a new path that he's going to lead the blind on. And, um, and, and we'll deal with the blind in a second because um, the next section is going to deal with that. But um, you also may notice that there's a lot of talk about coastlines. And if you are in uh, an exile all the way in Babylon. I mean, you are far from any sort of coastland. And um, God's re- reminding his people, look, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back all the way to the edge of the land, all the way to uh, the edge of the promise. And, um, and and so I think there's a reminder of sort of this, this constant refrain of bringing you back all the way to its full completion. And through a lot of what we're reading about these promises to Israel, we're reminded in this section that God is a missionary God, that everything he's doing is creating space and opportunity that all nations will see his work of deliverance. Yeah, but we are also reminded, and we'll get a little bit of these refrains throughout, of Israel's problem. And and God tells like the, the, these unnamed blind and deaf people to look at Israel, that they too are blind and deaf. And that's why God had to bring the punishment, and that's why God had to bring the previous chapters of Isaiah uh, and Babylon. And, and because of their blindness, because of their deafness, they are exhibit 101 of what happens to blind and deaf. Yeah. And remember here that Israel was to be a priesthood to all nations, but how are they supposed to lead others to light when they can't even find it? And it is supposed to kind of leave us saying, oh, we need someone to illuminate truth. We need someone to heal the blind and to guide us in truth. And that's a Messiah. Yeah. And and so 
What's great is that if they are exhibit 101 of what God does with blind and deaf, we also see God immediately in the next section go, although you were blind and deaf, I have redeemed mm. you, which is yeah. good news to the other blind and deaf, which is likely to Gentiles that, that God started pointing to in this new thing. And so uh, Israel will be restored as a servant. And although Israel is blind and deaf, God will deliver them, even if it's through fire and through suffering, they will not be forgotten. They will be redeemed. And and there's some clarification that it's the blind who learn to see, who are able to see or the deaf who are able to hear um, that those, all those sinners can trust in God. And so I, I think this whole section paints a lot of that picture. It's like comfort for my people, comfort my people to remind them, look, you, yes, you were blind, you were deaf, you, your ancestors practiced terrible forms of idolatry, but I will not forgive you. I will not give up on you and I will restore you. And so um, that's kind of a, a constant thing. It's about God's tremendous judgment, but also his tremendous grace. And, and I think that's what ultimately is being painted through this whole section for his people that God, I'm going to deal with Babylon. It's going to be like this Red Sea moment. Um, I'm going to bring deliverance and it's going to be like something you haven't seen before. And and I need you to, to know Israel. Yes, I hate idols. I hated that in your history. But I'm also the God who takes the blind and gives them sight and takes the deaf and gives them ears and will restore my people. I love this section. I love how it ends. Even though God has always been the only deliverer of Israel, they didn't come to him and they didn't worship him, but he will still blot out their transgressions because that is who he is. And also, I just want to read verse seven of chapter 43 quickly. Um, he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And, you know, lots of times we'll ask ourselves, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do? And this is your answer. Our purpose is God's glory. And sometimes that's going to be in doing something you feel makes you completely alive and is everything you hoped for. And sometimes it's going to be the opposite where what you do feels like death every day and it is completely unsatisfying. But we know that God formed you and he made you for his glory. So make that your prayer as you ask what to do. Um, remember that that is our purpose is his glory. Yeah. And, and once again, we're reminded that Israel is the Lord's servant and, uh, there will be a form of restoration coming and, and, um, is it just about return of Israel? Is it something bigger? And probably the answer is yes yeah. uh, to both those questions. Yeah. But so, there's yeah. hope. Yep. Uh, and once again, God, uh, points out that there's no one to compare with like mm. Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And, uh, and all these sort of questions that Yahweh thro- kind of throws out. It's like, who is like me? And like there's, there's crickets to these answers. Uh, there's no interjection like we saw in Job. It's just silence and uh, no no one to say anything because there's no one like God. Yeah. And God reminds him of that. It's like speaking of speaking of not comparing anything to me. Like let me remind you, idols are the worst. And and I always love this section because it points out a little bit of the just the logical futility of idols. He's like an iron smith forges iron, but they get weak and, and, and tired as they hammer or a carpenter works with wood and creates this whole idol out of wood. And, and God points out also the carpenter also uses that wood for fuel for cooking and the same wood that he uses to make an idol. It's like, how deluded can you get uh, worshiping the wood you'd otherwise burn just for practical uses? And God sort of announces like the carpenter's like feasting on ashes and, and sort of just the futility of like, this doesn't even make sense. Like I make wood and yet you, these people use wood to burn, to make food. And yet you're making idols out of them and worshiping them. Like that just seems silly. And he's kind of pointing out the, 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 the flaws of any sort of um, literally handmade, man-made idols. 
Yeah, God is kind of saying it's it's pretty delusional to worship a thing that was made by a person that I created and with an item that I created. But consider how we also worship things that are fading or in the control of other people, whether it's financial growth or approval or even our own power. Yep. All of that is given and created by man. And it's really delusional, honestly, to think that it's going to be obtained or that it will satisfy us. Yep. Um, and remember Israel, Yahweh redeems you. Like there's, there's in the midst of all that talk about idols again, you were deaf, you were blind, you were idolaters, but God has redeemed you. And he proclaims his glory as sort of the world savior. Like he, he made everything. He formed the people of Israel from the womb. Um, and he can frustrate fortune tellers or magicians or all the people that, um, would work against him. And so, uh, this is sort of a, a the constant reminder through this section. It's like, God is God. And when you remember that, I love this line. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. This is the power of God. Even your past sins, no, how, no matter how permanent they feel, are, are like a cloud and a mist that disappears in the light of redemption. Yep. So jumping to John, uh, and we just picked up uh, the last week and the last reading was about Peter and um, Jesus basically telling Peter he's going to betray him. This sort of uh, uh, pretty harsh probably news for Peter at that moment, who seems very confident that he will uh, stand up for the Lord. And and I think his immediate response is like, look, look, don't lose heart. Don't be troubled by this, Peter. And, and then he starts moving into a discussion of the larger disciples. And he picks up on um, an image that would put him probably really much more tied into sort of ancient marriage practices that a bridegroom would sort of propose to a, a future bride, um, but then go away to a period of time and, and go prepare a house to go prepare a room um, that was usually part of like a housing complex. They would add on an additional room or building um, during that time. And, and during that time they would be away and, and that space would be prepared for the son and the father to basically still live on the same compound. So Jesus is assuring his disciples using that imagery, I think to say, look, although I'm departing you. You know what this is like. I'm going to prepare for our marriage together, this new covenant together, that you will have a place ready for you, a place where Mm -hmm. Jesus and his father will dwell with his people. And, um, Understandably, they struggle with sort of this. They think it's some physical location, uh, but but Jesus answers them, and he's pretty gracious about it. He, um, he doesn't answer the physical location because it's not about physical location per se. It's about access to the Father. And then they're like, "Okay, well then, can we see the Father?" And Jesus is like, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like I am a reflection of all that the Father is, at least in human bodily form." And and so this is sort of the the presentation there. And 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 he tells the disciples that they they themselves will also show what the father's like. Um, and he uses a phrase talking about greater works and I just, um, greater can certainly mean multiple things. Some, it could be about like greater in quality, like doing even uh, better works per se, um, or greater in quantity. And, um, I'm not sure the disciples are meant to perform qualitatively greater works. Like, I don't know how you top raising people from the dead and healing the sick and driving out demons, but more likely the sort of quantitative greater works here that Jesus has to leave so that he can send the spirit so that the, the manifestation, the spirit's work in this world is not just confined to one human in Jesus, but will be manifest in billions of people spread throughout the earth. And that will be a greater work than if Jesus were just to stay in this one spot in this one human in this one person walking around. And so I think that's encouragement for the disciples. Yeah. And again, John, with his goal in this book to show us how Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is God himself, we see here him saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is God. He is the only access to the Father. 
Yep. Uh, and speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is letting them into this whole world that they probably have been unsure of at this point. Because Jesus has said things about his death. He hasn't really talked about what happens after he dies. He hasn't clarified that a whole lot for his people, uh, for these disciples. But now he's saying, look, look, I, I am going to leave, but I'm going to send a, a helper, a paraclete to you. And it's going to be this Holy Spirit. And he doubles down the idea of like... Um, this Holy Spirit is going to come to you. It's going to reside on you, but the world's not going to understand it. Just like I'm going to appear after my death uh, to you, but the world's not going to really see uh, truly my resurrection. And and in this in this all, I think there's still a very pastoral moment for these people in this sort of do not fear kind of setting. Um, that he's saying, look, I'm not going to leave you without power. There's going to be a helper that's going to be with you, and I'm not going to leave you without presence. So they're like, uh, or Jesus uses a phrase like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. There's, there's going to be family uh, for you on the other side of this. Um, and he connects the ideas of love of the Father with obedience here, and um, he's encouraging them, telling the Holy Spirit will even help you remember all this teaching so that you can obey. And and even though Jesus is leaving, that, that they not be troubled by this all, that there would be peace, a sort of, a sort of supernatural peace to it all. And, and, and the section sort of ends there with Jesus kind of saying, like, death is in my hands. Like, I, this is what I need to do. Like, I'm, I'm going to die. And, and that's the plan all along so that I can go to my father and I can send the spirit to you. And, and there would be reconciliation for all those who believe. Yeah. I think it's, it's worth us pausing to acknowledge how much Jesus talks about fear and peace in this section. And if he's talking about fear so much, it means that fear is in some ways a, a natural response. We all may feel fear about our faith or certain things at certain times. And that's why we have to come back to his word and remember that he offers us peace. And it's going to be peace that transcends understanding that we can't always explain, but it's a gift from God. And we get it through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Yeah. And then we're taught about the true vine um, and, and some of the language here and, and some of this will probably end up just being me interpretation, but um, the opening section talk, talks about the, the branches that are in Christ and there's branches that are in Christ that bear fruit and there's branches that are in Christ. At least the phrase still there is in Christ that do not. Um, and then it talks about um, the, some of the translations will say the words takes away, but, but the, the word takes away in the Greek is, is predominantly used as a word lifts up. And I think the the sort of picture there is to, is is that e- even in your sort of fruitless seasons that that remain in Christ and He will He will lift up He will do the work of um, the imagery is uh, the vines would grow and then they'd have these cables cut across and then the vines would grow across the cables and as long as they were sort of kind of growing on the cables they would bear fruit but as soon as they kind of fell down sort of in a way to the ground. They were touching the ground, the fruit, they would become really unfruitful. And it took the vine dresser coming and raising them back up, winding them back on the vines, and then they would be fruitful again. And, and so I think that's the picture, the sort of picture of perseverance, that one that bears fruits will be pruned, it'll be trained, trimmed and clean. Those that are still in Christ, remaining in Christ, that don't will ultimately be lifted up by the Father. But then there's those who are not connected to Christ at all, that are not persevering in a way that stays connected. And and so one has a gracious invitation, but but on that side, it's sort of like, and there will be judgment. There will be a destruction of those that don't abide, that don't stay connected through, I, I would argue, spiritual disciplines and practices of prayer and seeking God through his word and, 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 and just constantly having that sort of personal nature between you and God through this for the relationship, this abiding to, to dwell and remain in Christ. And so, um, but we get language around sort of prayer and, and teaching on prayer. And it sounds a little name and claim it that whatever we ask, God will give it to you. But we also have to remember the prerequisite to that statement is that 
uh, that that we have Jesus's words abide in us, then whatever we ask. And it's important to note that if we have Jesus's words abiding in us, dwelling in us, then we know Jesus's will. We know Jesus's desires for things. And we know to ask more and more in line with who Jesus is and his character. And I think this is how that promise that whatever we ask will be given can be stated is because we'd, we'd be so aligned with, with what Jesus's desires for the world are. And there's talk about joy and love, pointing out the commandments that, that we are to love one another, even to the point of death. And, um, and this is information that Jesus is like, look, I'm giving you this information because you're my friends. You're not hired workers per se. You, you are my close friends. And, um, and, and he reminds them arguably one of the more reformed statements from Jesus, like, but you guys did not choose me and I chose you, but I chose you to be friends, not just servants. This metaphor of the vine and the branches, it just sticks with me. I think about it a lot. And it still feels like this crazy mystery to understand, but it really does give us an amazing picture of our role, even within the Trinity. God, the father is the vine dresser and the gardener and the son is the vine and the spirit is the one who produces the fruit. So let's stop and consider for a moment that as we abide in the vine and love one another, we are joining in on this holy Trinitarian communion that's happening between the father and the son and the spirit. And, and it's not us doing the work, but it is us sitting in this communion and being transformed through that. Yeah. And in line with this sort of encouragement to remain in him, to, to in some ways probably uh, persevere with him, this, this, this teaching about trying to find peace and ultimately God uh, being the one to grant peace. He's also reminding them like, look, like, and there will be those who hate you. There will be those who, um, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. And, and which totally just makes sense if we're proclaiming the very message that got Jesus killed, that it could um, um, that there's a true enemy in this world that's going to be working against that. And, um, but we're reminded in that same section, the Holy Spirit's still coming to, to help you testify about what I'm saying. And so when Jesus says, I'm saying all these things to keep you from falling away, like I'm telling you these things for endurance sake. So you're not surprised in some ways when those come that, that really hate you or it, you realize that this is way harder than you think. And so, um, and, and, and it's interesting because even Jesus here is like many of the people who are going to be working against you think they're actually being obedient to God yet are woefully wrong, which I would argue in our day and time, like we still have a lot of that of people who are doing works in God's name. Um, but, but working against the very people of God. There's I, the way this flows shows us that there is a missional component to our abiding in the vine. I just want to read a quote from the Gospel Transformation Bible Commentary. It says, The more fully we give ourselves to a life of abiding in Jesus, the richer our fellowship will be with all three members of the Trinity, and intimacy with God will propel us into the mission field. The more the gospel takes hold in our churches, the more we will be outward facing in mission, not inward facing in fear. Grace comes to us in order that it might flow through us. Thus, we should not be surprised at opposition and persecution. Yeah. Um, and Jesus seems to be noticing that they're no longer asking questions about where he's going, but he seems to notice their their sadness, their, their, their struggle here to, to understand just all this stuff. And he reminds them once again, look, it's, it is better if I go. It is better because you will get the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit's going to do amazing things. It's going to convict the world of sin. It's going to draw people towards righteousness. And 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 he reminds them, look, and and, and all the things I'm teaching you, like the, the Holy Spirit's going to keep teaching you. He's going to reveal more things to you. Just wait. And it's going to be good. And he's trying to really draw out this sort of sense of hope um, and, and, and why um, life in the Spirit will be even better than life with walking around with Jesus. 
Yeah, Jesus encourages them that they don't have all the answers right now, but that the Spirit, the Helper, is going to guide them into the answers, into truth. And the Spirit truly does guide all of us into truth. We all end up in circumstances where we're confused as to what truth is or how to walk in it. So when you end up there, stop and ask the Spirit to guide you. Slow down. Listen to the Lord. Read His Word, which is inspired by the Spirit. And the truth and that Helper is going to guide you. And then we get um, Jesus confused them that much more, where He talks about, look, I'm going to go away in a little bit, but in a little bit more, you'll get to see me again. And the disciples really have no understanding of the resurrection. I think at this point, uh, I think they're still struggling to understand. Uh, Maybe Jesus has to die, which is why they're so sorrowful, but I don't think they really get that he'll literally come back in bodily form. And, and, and Jesus compares it in a great analogy to labor pains. It's like, look guys, Friday night, Saturday, all day, Saturday night, like it's going to be painful. It's going to be tears. It's going to be sorrow. But Sunday morning, you'll you'll have joy. No one can take away. Like that, just like labor, it's painful and it's hard. But then then there's a new birth that comes. Or uh, I think he's arguing the birth of this new covenant. And, and and on the backside of that, like you'll forget almost of the pain, and 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 there'll be so much joy, and and you'll have access to the Father that 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 and and the sending of the Spirit, and you'll be able to pray directly to the Father and and. And, and in my name, and so uh, all that teaching, sort of giving them once again this hope of that there's that there's so much on the other side that they're just not seeing yet. Mm. Yeah, he kind of clarifies a little bit of this idea of the already and the not yet that they would feel sorrow and loss in the moment, and that they would see the world rejoice. But these guys were to hold out hope for something they didn't fully see or understand, but it would it would be made clear eventually. Yep, Psalm twenty eight. So for David's enemies, he prays, give them the work of their hands. And we as believers, when you think about it, have not received the work of our hands, but the work of God's deliverance from his hand. So I think there's a really cool gospel connection in this psalm, and it's an amazing gift. Yeah, we're, we're kind of given a, a very standard formula once again in the psalm, too, of uh, sort of a disapproval of what what the author perceives God is doing in the world, um, this this urging for God to intercede, particularly in punishment for the enemies, and um, the sort of blessing Yahweh, realizing that he is truly a refuge. And um, it's often a process for a lot of us in our prayers. Psalm 70. So he's crying out for deliverance, and David is not seeking, again, to bring about his own justice, but asking God for justice. This is a lot harder to do. Uh, than David seems to imply in his psalms, but it's something for all of us to remember. Yeah, it's it's a short psalm, but one just a total desperation. And it feels like it's wrapping up, but then it's like, but as for me, I'm poor and needy, so come quickly, O Lord. Uh, do not delay. And so there's still, it ends with the sort of desperation still. Psalm 25. So this talks a lot about fearing God and the benefits, the results of fearing God are so good. There's pardoned guilt, there's instruction, there's abiding in well-being, and there's friendship with the Lord. Yeah, it, it, it uh, feels a little bit, I think Spurgeon takes his take that this is a psalm late in David's life, and he's reflecting and, and looking back, it's like, oh, God, God, forgive me of my youthful sins, the things I made mistakes at when I was younger, and you know, reflecting on just on a lifetime of a relationship with the Lord, uh, which, as Sarah said, it's like this friendship uh, that feels mm-hmm. like uh, from the author. All right, next week. So in the Old Testament, just consider how much God discusses his creation in the next section. And what do you think he's emphasizing through this focus on creation? And then in the New Testament, we're going to look at a different emphasis. What is the focus or the emphasis of Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17? How would you summarize his focus of his prayers for future believers? Yeah. And as we read next week, um, see if you can spot... um, where some people think there's a possible shift in the identity of the servant. As I 
what it said. Like it really feels like Israel is being more explicitly identified as a servant. But I would argue as we read next week, uh, I think there's going to be a section that feels like there's a, a bit of a shift on the identity or the character of that servant. And then New Testament, uh, as Jesus interacts with Pilate, uh, remember John's off uh, audience is likely here in Ephesus, um, a Greco-Roman influenced hub of the West where there's debates about power. There's debates about truth, things like that all the time. So um, what might John be highlighting in this exchange with Pilate to, to help his audience kind of understand Jesus, particularly in their Greco-Roman background? All right. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.